January 7, 2014. In a cramped white room in Oklahoma State Penitentiary sits a man on death row for homicide. His execution by lethal injection will come in just two days' time. But today is not about the crime that landed him in prison. Today is about another crime, one that's weighed on him for the past 19 years. He needs to set the record straight. Michael Lee Wilson relaxes into his chair, displaying none of the nervousness one might expect from a man so close to death. He wears a baggy gray t-shirt and dark pants. A velvet green tattoo snakes down his forearm, leading to his silver handcuffs. His charming smile and careless laugh make it easy to forget that Wilson is a convicted murderer. Sitting across from him is Professor Tiffany Murphy from the Oklahoma Innocence Project. Her manner is far more serious than Wilson's as she meticulously runs through the horrific events that transpired in the early hours of September 10th, 1994, when an innocent young woman by the name of Karen Summers was ruthlessly gunned down in the street. And two equally innocent young men, Malcolm Scott and DeMarco Carpenter, were arrested for the crime. We gotta make this right, Wilson pleads. I'm going to make sure this is straight. Wilson flicks his small, bright eyes to the ceiling, a shadow of guilt on his face. Guilt that's haunted him for 20 years. His mind perhaps racing back to that fateful evening, picturing the maroon truck that would be Summer's final sight on Earth. A gun in his hands that would send two blameless teens to life in prison. Wilson shakes his head at the enormity of his crime a crime that killed a 19-year-old mother and robbed two boys of their childhoods. He blinks towards the sky where he believes his newly found God sits in judgment. He has nothing left to lose. Wilson knows this is his last chance as he states, Malcolm Scott and DeMarco Carpenter are innocent. At the moment of death, People often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chest. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Michael Lee Wilson, the words he spoke before he died. It's about a single mother fatally shot as a gang war got out of hand. Two teenagers who spent 7,000 812 days behind bars for a crime they didn't commit. A community ravaged by violence, gangs, and death. A police system that let the man holding the murder weapon walk free. And a two-time killer's final chance to do good. I'm Estefania Haikman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., 
And I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. On November 8th, 1995, DeMarco Carpenter and Malcolm Scott, both minors at the time, were sentenced to life in prison without parole for the murder of Karen Summers. Though the boys adamantly protested their innocence and had solid alibis, witness testimonies ultimately sealed their fates. Testimonies that included Michael Lee Wilson's. At the time of Wilson's deathbed confession, Carpenter and Scott had spent nearly two decades behind bars. The best years of their lives stolen from them in one of the most heinous miscarriages of justice in Oklahoma history. But how did the justice system fail these two young men so terribly? And how could Michael Lee Wilson have let this injustice go on for nearly two decades? It's the mid-1980s, and the crack cocaine epidemic is ravaging America. Once considered a luxury drug for the wealthy, the price of cocaine has suddenly dropped by 80% due to a massive influx of it making it through American borders. Faced with losing their entire businesses, dealers quickly discover crack. They dissolve powdered cocaine with water and ammonia to form a small crystallized substance that can be smoked. It achieves the same high as snorting cocaine, but is much cheaper and far more addictive. Suddenly, crack is on street corners, in parks, around schools, at police stations, on TVs. It's estimated that 5.8 million Americans are smoking it. It's inescapable. Because of its widespread popularity, an average crack dealer makes around $2,000 per month. This is almost quadruple the minimum wage at the time. As a result, the number of dealers explodes. The epidemic hits poor communities hardest due to the cheapness of the drug and the high profit margins it offers through dealing. So all of a sudden, America changes. Teenagers from impoverished backgrounds become millionaires thanks to the drug trade. It isn't just the crack that's addictive. It's the money and the lifestyle that dealing it affords. Michael Lee Wilson, Malcolm Scott, and DeMarco Carpenter are all children when crack is exploding on the American scene and witness it devastate Tulsa. They grow up watching teenagers jump from bankruptcy to BMWs, hearing violent fights break out between dealers, seeing babies torn from addicted mothers. They see how the police have washed their hands of the epidemic and don't have the time or resources to stop it. So another force has filled this vacuum of control. Gangs. The spread of gangs has hit North Tulsa hard. In fact, it's pretty much split North Tulsa into territories held by two gangs, the Bloods 
and the crypts. On the surface, they don't seem that different. Both deal crack, commit robberies, and use violence to protect their respective territories. But here, it's a fatal mistake to confuse the two because the Bloods and Crips are fierce rivals. The Bloods are signified by the color red, their rivals, the color blue. Wear a red t-shirt in a Crips neighborhood and you might as well be signing your own death warrant. Although gang homicides are pushing Oklahoma into America's top 10 of gang-associated states, many of the police won't admit their southern city has a problem. Among these skeptics is Drew Diamond, Tulsa's chief of police. Residents beg for police protection, too afraid to leave their apartments after sunset, constantly on alert for the sound of gunshots. But their pleas appear to fall on deaf ears. We have a handful of dope-dealing street thieves, Diamond sighs, but they don't constitute a gang. And so nothing is done. Crack cocaine dominates the lives of teenagers, husbands, mothers, dealers, users, everyone. As a result, Tulsa's residents continue to live in danger. Gangs grow, profits grow, dealers become richer, while users become poorer. Michael Lee Wilson was born on February 18, 1975, in Oklahoma. As a child, he saw his older brother sentenced to life in prison for gang-related crimes. It isn't long before Wilson follows in his footsteps. When he's a teenager, he joins the notorious North Tulsa Bloods and quickly becomes a dedicated, prolific member. You see, being part of a gang isn't just about organized crime. It's also about brotherhood finding a sense of belonging within a group of people that have your back. Wilson feels a deep connection with his newfound family. Before he can legally order a drink in a bar, will kill in their name. Crimes which will see him sentenced to the death penalty. But this isn't just the story of Wilson and his downfall. It's about the two innocent boys who went down with him. It's the 21st of November, 1993. A large crowd gathers inside the Wagon Wheel restaurant in North Tulsa to escape the cold. Among these locals are two teenagers, Malcolm Scott and DeMarco Carpenter. Both are just 16 years old, but like Wilson, are already members of the North Tulsa Bloods. The larger of the two boys, Carpenter, is the life and soul of the party. His nickname is Loco, or crazy in Spanish perhaps hinting at his vivacious personality. At six foot three, he dominates every room with his goofy smile and endless energy. He's a lanky but talented basketball player who once dreamed of playing in the NBA. But life had other plans for him. Carpenter recently became the man of the house after his father walked out. Perhaps it was this responsibility that drove him into the financial and social support of gang culture. Standing next to Carpenter is his close friend, Malcolm Scott, or Dirty Mac to his friends. At five foot three, he barely reaches the broad shoulders of his companion, but his short height and stocky build have made him a star on the football field and in the wrestling arena. He's recently returned from his sister's house in North Carolina. His protective mother sent him there in a desperate attempt to get him away from the growing gang culture in Tulsa. He's a smart, sensitive young man, and she believes he has a bright future. 
but Scott missed his friends and life back in his hometown. So, age 16, he returned and quickly fell in with the Bloods. The boys have come to the wagon wheel today to meet up with a few girls they know. Seeing them at the bar, they walk over. Next thing they know, the restaurant's filled with shouting, screaming. Bullets are flying through the flimsy wooden walls, smashing windows. Chaos rings through the building. Scott instructs the girls to hide and they take cover behind the bar. As he looks around, panic surges through him and he realizes Carpenter isn't there. Scott nervously jumps up and sees his tall friend standing in the doorway, trying to exit the restaurant. He shouts to him to get down, but it's too late. Carpenter has been struck in the arm and collapses in the doorway as the gunman continues to fire at his limp body. Scott jumps out from his hiding place and runs to his friend. A bullet tears into his leg, but he keeps on running. Carpenter's laying on the floor, shaking in pain and struggling to stay awake. Don't go to sleep, Scott warns him as he carries him into his car. Listen to my voice. But Scott knows there's not much hope. The seat where Carpenter's body is lying is soaked with blood. Scott speeds to the hospital, ignoring the bullets stinging his own leg. The doctors work a miracle on Carpenter's battered body and manage to keep him alive. But with extensive damage done to his frame and internal organs, the recovery process is slow and painful. The 16-year-old will spend the next year with a colostomy bag strapped to his torso, undergo a tracheostomy, and relearn to walk. If Scott hadn't rushed Carpenter to the hospital that morning, there's little chance he would have survived. The gunman from that drive-by is never discovered. The police line up a number of suspects, but make no arrests. They believe it's in retaliation to a previous shooting and simply write it off as a gang feud. Wilson had been lucky to escape the attack on the Wagon Wheel restaurant. Maybe he knew that violence was planned and sensibly stayed away from crowded spaces. Or perhaps the popular party scene of the wagon wheel just isn't for him anymore. After all, he has a serious girlfriend with whom he's starting a family. But as a dedicated member of the North Tolson Bloods, he's never really safe from violence and nearly a year after the wagon wheel shooting, Wilson himself becomes the target of a gang-related attack. On September the 7th, 1994, Wilson is staying with his girlfriend, Tanya Holt. Holt lives in a Crips neighborhood. In a Bloods area, Wilson is almost untouchable, but a Crips neighborhood is an extremely dangerous place for him. He's a well-known member of the Bloods, and any Crip would jump at the chance to challenge him. But Holt knows very little about Wilson's involvement in the Bloods. She's aware that he's linked to the gang, of course, but he manages to keep the details from her. Wilson and Holt are sitting outside enjoying the warm evening air when suddenly their peace is shattered. Before the two young, soon-to-be parents have a chance to react, bullets are flying through the air towards them. Holt screams in shock and clutches her pregnant stomach. Wilson yells at her to get inside the house and pulls out a pistol from his jacket. As the firing subsides momentarily, he hurries her to the door and pushes her inside. Wilson turns around in anger, looking for the attacker. 
He raises his pistol and aims in the direction of the assailants, but suddenly collapses and shouts in pain as a bullet lands in his leg. He fires once, twice, three times in any direction, hoping to hit the attacker and make them pay. But his aim is messy as he lays on the floor, grabbing his leg with one hand and firing with the other. After a few moments, there's silence, and he tells Holt it's safe to come out again. The attacker must have gotten away. This event will change not only the course of Wilson's life, but Scott and Carpenter's too. As he embarks on a ruthless mission of vengeance, with no regard of the innocent lives he takes along the way. It's the evening of September 9th, and Carpenter and Scott are hanging out with two girls they know from school. The four teenagers awkwardly stand around the broken porch of a tiny two-bedroom house. The house belongs to Carpenter's mother who asks them to stay where she can see and allows her youngest son to tag along. Don't go nowhere tonight, she shouts from the living room. I have a bad feeling. Scott and Carpenter laugh at her warning and continue showing off. By 1.30 a.m., the girls are bored and suggest going to the local Quick Trip store. Although Carpenter's mother warned them not to leave, the store is only a few blocks away in a neighborhood they know well. So the teens pile into a white Chevy Lumina while Carpenter's younger brother is left behind. Carpenter and Scott are right. The store is just minutes away and they make it in and out with no trouble. Well, almost. As they're leaving, Wilson and two friends walk in and head towards the boys. Wilson is limping heavily after the attack on his leg three days ago. The men greet each other cordially. They've known one another since childhood and are part of the same gang, but they don't hang out much anymore. Wilson bitterly explains about the shooting that injured his leg and assures Carpenter and Scott he's out to get even with whoever fired the bullets. The conversation doesn't last long and soon they disperse and continue on their ways. Carpenter's younger brother watches eagerly out of his bedroom window, waiting for him to return. He's nervous about admitting to their mother that they disobeyed her wishes. But after about five minutes, he sees the white Chevy pull up and the boys pile out quietly. The girls wave from the front windows and drive off while Scott jumps on his bike and makes his way to Apache Manor to visit another love interest. Carpenter checks his watch, notices it's now 1.40 a.m., and decides to turn in for the night. He's still recovering from his multiple surgeries, after all, and in spite of his young age, gets tired easily. He quietly makes his way into the house and gets in bed. While Scott is at Apache Manor and Carpenter sleeps, Karen Summers is enjoying a night out with her best friends at the Wavelink Club. Summers, or Sean, to those closest to her, is a 19-year-old single mother who dropped out of school to look after her baby son. She's popular with her friends and had an active social life before her son was born, but she can't go out as much as she'd like to anymore. Not that she minds the sacrifice. She's a dedicated and loving mother who dotes on her baby boy. But tonight is different. Tonight, she's partying with her three best friends and taking a much needed break. Summers and her friends spend the early hours of September 10th at the Wavelink nightclub. It's fun for a while, but then one of them remembers seeing a house party advertised at school. Flyers have been distributed all around with a date, time, and address. It's only 1.30 a.m., so they still have time to get there. 
The party is being held at a Crips house. Even though Summers isn't affiliated with the gang, she agrees to go along for a while. But the party is a bit of a disappointment. The friends sit in Summers' car across the road from the house and roll their eyes at the immaturity of the boys. They're smashing perfume bottles and setting them on fire, no doubt in an attempt to get their attention. This isn't impressive, they think. It's dangerous. They reluctantly agree to stay for just a few hours and make their way onto the lawn in front of the house to look for some more friends to chat with. By 2.45 a.m., the girls are ready to go. One of them is slouched in the front seat of the car, her head lolling in her lap. She's had too much to drink and isn't feeling well. She tries to grab Summer's attention to tell her she's ready to go home. But Summer's is momentarily distracted. With her long legs balanced against the hood of the car, she's enjoying talking to two 16-year-old boys, Rashawn Williams, or Robini to his friends, and Kenneth Price. A maroon Ford truck passes the house party slowly. It looks suspicious as it creeps past, but no one gives it another thought. Then it turns around. A shout of, hey blood, is heard from the window, followed by a smattering of bullets. The bullets miss two of the girls who are bending over to get in Summer's car. They pelt Rob Beanie and land in the backside of Kenneth Price, but neither of the boys are injured seriously. There's a shield standing in front of them, unintentionally taking the full force of the fire. The body of Karen Summers. Summers collapses into Rob Beanie's arms, He drags her off the street and onto the lawn before running after the shooters. Summer's friends spring into action, lifting her unconscious body into the car. Adrenaline sobers them up as they speed towards the hospital, terrified for their friend's life. But they're too late. Karen Summers is pronounced dead on arrival. The following day, Tulsa police officer Mike Huff visits Wilson at his mother's house. Walking up the short drive, Huff passes a maroon Ford Taurus parked outside, which matches exactly with descriptions given to police of the car in the fatal drive-by. Huff approaches a carefree, relaxed Wilson and asks him to come down to the station. He reassures him that he's not a suspect in this particular murder. The police just want to see if he knows anything about it. Wilson cheerfully agrees. You see, he's known to the police as a well-connected mobster. It's easy to presume he'll know the murderers of Karen Summers. Wilson excuses himself to call his mother and let her know where he'll be. Huff follows him into the house suspiciously and watches Wilson slip a gun from under his shirt onto his bed. He clears his throat and Wilson meekly hands the weapon over. During this brief encounter, Huff has found two damning pieces of evidence against Wilson. Evidence that links him conclusively to the murder. Both the truck and the gun match descriptions of those used in the drive-by. Huff hands the gun over to the forensic team to carry out ballistic tests. Down at the station, Wilson begins to feel sick with nerves. He knows the evidence they've collected will reveal him to be the murderer, and a crime like this will surely lead to life imprisonment. He tries to act as calm as possible. But before the questioning starts, 
the detectives explain to him that they still don't believe he's the murderer. They start asking him about Carpenter and Scott. How well did Wilson know them? Would they have any reason to commit the murder? Was Wilson involved with them in any way? Wilson doesn't know what to say. He was so sure they'd arrest him for the shooting. He carefully asks why Scott and Carpenter are the main suspects, and the police explain that these were the two names given to them by witnesses. Wilson accepts this with a heavy sigh of relief. Seven weeks pass and Wilson continues living his normal life. He goes to work at a local quick trip store, hangs out with friends, and doesn't even try to run or hide. He gets a little nervous when he sees a police car nearby, but they haven't stopped him yet. Then one morning in November, Wilson receives an anonymous phone call. He answers, but the caller hangs up immediately. It rings again, and this time it's his mother. Police are surrounding her house, asking for Wilson and demanding her to make contact. He knows what this means. The police are onto him. Wilson obediently walks to her house, raising his hands so the swarming officers can see. There's no point trying to run now, he thinks. An officer walks up to him with handcuffs, and Wilson holds out his wrists. You're under arrest for the murder of Karen Summers. Wilson sits next to his attorney opposite two homicide detectives from the Tulsa Police Force. The detectives explain that the ballistic reports showed a match between the bullets from his gun and those in Summers' body. He knows he's in trouble now. Both he and his attorney are aware that Wilson was the murderer and can only hope to get as short a sentence as possible. And while they prepare for trial, Wilson is sent to the county jail for a month. But during this wait, Wilson's attorney brings him life-changing news. The police don't think Wilson was the one who pulled the trigger. Yes, the evidence proves he was involved, but they're convinced by the eyewitnesses who claim to have seen Scott and Carpenter. The police are willing to trial Wilson for accessory to the fact and sentence him to just five years with a $5,000 bond. All he has to do is answer yes when questioned. Maybe it makes the detective's jobs easier to simply believe what the witnesses say and not investigate further. Or perhaps the police don't want to admit to the embarrassment of having let the murderer walk free for seven weeks. Either way, officers make it clear they're only interested in Carpenter and Scott. So Wilson agrees to plead guilty as an accessory to the crime. When asked if he gave bullets to Carpenter, he answers yes. When questioned if Carpenter gave Wilson the gun to look after, he again lies, yes. He never even says that Scott and Carpenter committed the murder, but his two answers are enough to secure his release. It's November 6th, 1995, and Scott and Carpenter sit in court awaiting their three-day trial. Due to the severity of the crime and their links to the Bloods, they're being tried as adults. But despite this, both remain optimistic as they can't see how they'll lose. All of the physical evidence points to Wilson and none of it to them. The first witness called to the stand is a member of the Tulsa forensic team. He explains that the bullet found in Summer's body matched those from the pistol everyone believes to belong to Carpenter. Strangely though, the judge never asks whether the fingerprints on the gun match those of Carpenter or Scott. 
The next witness is Wilson himself. However, his failure to cooperate by answering I do not recall to each question gets him sent out of court. Without reliable testimony from Wilson, the court depends exclusively on eyewitness evidence. A young boy who was shot in the arm that day is called up. He never identifies Scott and Carpenter as the shooters, but admits they're members of the North Tulsa Bloods. Next to take the stand is Price, one of the boys who stood with Summers that night. Price swears that he saw Scott fire the gun and identifies him and Carpenter as the murderers. His word is questioned, as he was shot in the buttocks so would never have had a clear view of the shooter. But he's insistent in his accusation and firmly believes he saw Scott. The final witness is Raw Beanie. He's less confident than Price and says he only somewhat saw who was in the car. But with a little encouragement from the prosecutor, he changes his story and confirms he definitely saw Scott and Carpenter. Last to take the stand against the accused is the prosecutor. She confidently stands in front of the teenagers and looks from them to the jury. That's your identification, she announces pointing to the boys. That's who did it. Although both Scott and Carpenter have strong alibis from that day, they're not presented. Scott was officially signed in as a visitor to Apache Manor during the shooting, and Carpenter's younger brother watched him turn in for the night. The jury leave and debate the testimonies they've just heard. The decision is not easy and keeps them away for nine hours. Scott and Carpenter both wait nervously. At 1.35 a.m. on the 8th of November, the jury finds Scott and Carpenter guilty of the murder of Karen Summers. The two teenagers are sentenced to life imprisonment, plus 175 years for shooting with the intent to kill. Their lives are over. Wilson can't believe his luck. He has literally gotten away with murder and is released on bond. But before he has too long to enjoy his unexpected freedom, he's back behind bars. On Friday the 25th of February, 1995, Wilson and two friends walk into the Quick Trip store where he works. His co-worker, Richard Yost, has just begun his shift when he's attacked by the three men as they try to rob the store. He's handcuffed and tied up before being beaten to death with a baseball bat. This time, Wilson doesn't have a scapegoat to pin the murder on. He and his friends were arrested and given the death penalty for the brutal murder. It's now 2006 and Scott and Carpenter continued to suffer in separate prisons. Carpenter spent the last 11 years writing to lawyers, judges, celebrities, even Obama and Oprah, begging them to look at his case, but he hasn't received any helpful responses. Then, a private investigator from North Tulsa offers an opportunity that could change their lives. He sends pamphlets out to state prisons, encouraging inmates to contact him if they need help with their appeals. Scott and Carpenter immediately write to him, but don't expect it to go anywhere. However, this time is different. The private investigator is intrigued by their case and speaks to both men and their mothers. And it's Carpenter's mother who provides the breakthrough. She brings out the trial transcripts, as well as an affidavit from Wilson's friend who accompanied him in the drive-by. The affidavit confesses that Wilson pulled the trigger to kill Summers, and Scott and Carpenter weren't at the scene. 
Wilson's friend was just 16 at the time and terrified of what would happen to him if he ever told the truth. Although his affidavit seems groundbreaking, it's not enough to free Scott and Carpenter. You see, the police have been aware of this testimony for years, but have ignored it because they don't want to reopen a case they believe they solved. So the investigator tries to find more evidence and speaks to Robini and Price. Robini shakes his head and refuses to cooperate to begin with. He doesn't believe in ratting anybody out. But then, in 2010, he and Price write affidavits which confess they did not see the shooters that day. According to them, the police threatened both men with the charge of murder if they didn't stick to their original stories and name Scott and Carpenter as the killers. The case of innocence is growing and it looks almost certain that Scott and Carpenter will get another trial to free them from their sentences. Wilson even writes to the private investigator, agreeing to talk about what really happened in the shooting and provide a full confession. But suddenly the case is brought to a grinding halt. Wilson's attorneys shut down all further communication with investigators and lawyers. They're trying to fight his death row sentence and another murder charge isn't helping their case. It looks as though Scott and Carpenter are stuck behind bars. By 2011, Scott and Carpenter have been in prison for 16 years for a crime they didn't commit. At this point, Scott has all but given up hope. He hasn't heard anything about his case in the year since Wilson's attorney shut down communications. So when he's handed a letter from the Oklahoma Innocence Project, he doesn't hold his breath. The letter claims that the Innocence Project wants to help him. They want to find eyewitness testimony and bring it back to trial. But Scott knows that they'll be hard-pressed to find cooperative witnesses for a case that's almost 20 years old. He writes back to say that Carpenter must also be included. They went down together, so they'll come out together. But he knows the odds are stacked against them. Once again, the case gets stronger with a few witnesses coming forward. New affidavits being released and more lawyers coming on board. But at this point, one of Wilson's co-conspirators has been executed by lethal injection, and Rob Eaney has died. Without these two witnesses, the case will struggle to get any further. And then, help for Scott and Carpenter comes from the unlikeliest of places. The man who has put them down for murder comes to their rescue. Wilson's death warrant has now been signed, and he's finally willing to confess the truth. On January 7th, 2014, Wilson gives his videotaped confession to the Oklahoma Innocence Project. He willingly explains the true version of events on the day Summers was killed. Wilson admits that he went out looking for revenge, rented the truck, bought the bullets, and pulled the trigger. Scott and Carpenter weren't involved. A cheerful Wilson still laughs in shock that he got cleared for the killing. After 20 years, he has no idea how he got caught with the murder weapon and was let free. He's laughing and smiling with the interviewer, but then stops. His face becomes serious, and he pauses for a moment before apologizing to Scott and Carpenter. I'm sorry for taking all those years away from them, he admits, then with a smile. Tell Dirty Mac I said what's up and I hope this helps. Two days later, Wilson is strapped to a bed awaiting his lethal injection. 
He announces that he loves the world and everyone in it, bearing no grudges to a place he's hardly known except from behind bars. Then, before the poison hits, he repeats, Malcolm Scott and DeMarco Carpenter are innocent. On the 9th of May, 2016, Scott and Carpenter enter courtroom 401. Their case is finally being retrialed due to the efforts of the Oklahoma Innocence Project. This is their last shot at freedom. Scott's attorney asks if Wilson's deathbed confession can be played. There's a murmur of dissent as the prosecution points out that he wasn't under oath during the interview, thus making the confession not legally binding. But the judge allows it anyway, and the court sits in silence as they listen to Wilson's words. A prosecutor takes the stand and challenges Wilson's testimony. He believes that a criminal on death row isn't a reliable witness. He scrutinizes the confession and tries to devalue it by reminding the court of Wilson's personal circumstances. After all, with just two days left to live, what difference would it make to Wilson if Scott and Carpenter walked free, he points out. The prosecutor dismisses Wilson's testimony as a criminal gang member helping out two guilty friends. However, Scott's lawyer doesn't back down. He reads the new affidavits which undermine evidence from the original trial and takes a pen from the judge to write down the figure 7,812. This is the total number of days Scott and Carpenter have been held in prison for a crime they didn't commit. He pleads with the court that their original trial was based on fear, not facts. The fear of growing gang violence and attacks on innocent victims made the police desperate to frame individuals they believed to be a threat and led the jury to lock two innocent men away for life. He looks at the judge and assures her that there is no evidence pointing to Scott and Carpenter that is even remotely trustworthy anymore. Scott and Carpenter are left in the courtroom while the judge deliberates in her chambers, deciding their fate. When she returns, the judge looks down at the two men who, now 39-year-old adults, have spent most of their life locked up. She summarizes the evidence that has been presented and announces her final decision. The judge believes that no reasonable jury would have found Scott and Carpenter guilty in 1995 if they had been given the same evidence as was put forward today. She finds the evidence clear and convincing and announces both men actually innocent of the murder of Karen Summers. Their charges are overturned. Scott and Carpenter can't believe it. They've been waiting 22 years to hear a judge say those words. The words they, their families, lawyers, and witnesses knew to be true. Tears come to Scott's eyes as he imagines what it would be like to finally return home. Carpenter grins at his family, unable to believe what he's heard. On the 10th of May, 2016, Scott and Carpenter are finally released from prison. Scott is the first to leave as he walks down the long gray corridor accompanied by two policemen, smiling uncontrollably and waving at his family and friends. He finally lets go of the policeman's hands holding his and rushes to his wheelchair-bound mother, hugging her and kissing her head as she cries into his body. Carpenter follows shortly after. Before he reaches the end of the corridor, his sister runs to him and jumps into his arms. Through tears, she repeats how much she's missed him. The two stand still, locked in their embrace. 
when Scott and Carpenter emerge from the county jail, they are greeted by a throng of reporters. Still the jokester he's always been. When asked what his plans for the future are, Carpenter replies, It's obvious that I can't pursue my NBA career, but I've been told that I have Denzel Washington and George Clooney's good looks. I think I'm going to be an actor. The reporter is stunned by his positivity and asks how he can still have a sense of humor after all the years of injustice. You can't be bitter about the past, Carpenter smiles. It's time to move forward and live for the future. After the press conference, Scott decides to go for a stroll around the block as a free man. Tulsa has changed so much since his incarceration, and he wants to get reacquainted with the city. It was a beautiful day. The sun, there was a perfect amount of wind blowing. It was not too hot, he later recalls. The day was just so right and perfect. This is what freedom feels like. This is what liberty is about. Next week on Deathbed Confessions, we meet Christian Bonkowski, a man who, on his deathbed, claimed to be a member of one of the most brutal gangs in recent history, the Brabant Killers. Bonkowski was a policeman himself, but confessed before he died to being part of a killing spree that spanned three years and left a trail of over 20 bodies. Acts of unimaginable violence carried out by a trio known only as the Giant, the Killer, and the Old Man. But is there any truth to Bonkowski's dying words? Or are the real killers still walking free around the streets of Belgium? Find out next week. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser, executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes, developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast, series produced by Addison Nugent, written by Nicole Edmonds, supervising editor, Kevin Pham, sound design by Matias Torresole, sound supervisor, Tom Pink, edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer, mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw, music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley, 